say Black Lives Matter as apocalyptic in that it uncovered the reality, um, the insidiousness of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's happened. I mean, it's, it's it, you know, what's happened is somebody does have to die. Um, something has to happen that sort of pulls back the covering. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what apocalyptic means, is to mm-hmm. uncover. Um, it's the revelation. Um, we just keep covering it up. We keep covering up the ways in which Black lives don't matter. And uh, Black Lives Matter a hashtag, the Black Lives Matter movement, um, has continued to help uncover the ways in which all lives matter is a bold-faced lie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not, it's not the truth that we live mm-hmm. in this country um, and in this globe. Well, thank you for joining me for another episode of the Real Lives of Strong Black Men podcast. Um, I'm Toby Tompkins, your host, and I'm coming to you today from sunny Miami, Florida, where I just had to get out of New York and go get some sand and some sun. And, and well, I didn't really get to go to the beach because, you know, this still is COVID-19. However, um, it's amazing how changing your environment can, can heal you, like from the inside out. And I definitely was ready for some healing. So two weeks in, I got my tan on. Um, I'm even and smooth now. I'm feeling good and I'm getting on my plane and heading back to New York. But before I do that, um, I am happy, more than happy. I am thrilled today to have a conversation with um, someone who I really look up to and admire and respect and rely upon for kind of um, helping me make sense of so much of not only what's going on in the world today, but, but someone who also helps me think about the why of what's next for me, for Black people, um, and for Black men in particular, um, Reverend Michael Ray Matthews. Um, I, I'm going to let him introduce himself, but, but he is, um, do you mind if I tell them who, what our, our initial relationship was? Um, we, we met several years ago because he was looking for a coach and a mutual friend of ours introduced us. And I was like, uh, he's like religious and he's a preacher and I don't go to church (laughs) and I don't read the Bible. I really don't know if if this is the, like, I get, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not thinking that this is going to really, because I can't quote scripture and do all the stuff that you know, I know it's going to happen and I don't end my conversations with be blessed. And I just had a whole lot of stuff that came up with the prospect of coaching this man. I felt very inadequate being his coach. And so I just, you know, sometimes you just sort of let people have their moment and you kind of figure, well, you know, they're going to pick somebody else. (laughs) And you know the rest because we're here today. (laughs) But I can say that, um, you know, there's no such thing as an expert when it comes to being black and male in the world (laughs) today. Indeed. (laughs) None. And um, so thank you, Michael Ray, for, for agreeing to be here. Um, Michael Ray, I will say this, uh, also um, has a podcast called Prophetic Resistance. And Mm -hmm. it is beyond powerful because it brings together two very timely and necessary um, conversations. Uh, One is prophecy, theology, and and Black theology, and a theology Mm -hmm. of Black liberation. And the other one is um, the, the mechanics of justice. You know, and what is the role of 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 the the black spirit, the black spirit that is in every black body? What is that spiritual agenda um, in the mechanics of the justice that we seek and that we're fighting for today in the streets, and that has been denied from us for what how many hundreds of years? So, with that, I'm gonna ask Michael to just say hi and tell us a little bit about himself and who he is and where he hails from and all that stuff. And then we'll get right into, mm-hmm. I don't know what to call this panel, this topic, this conversation, except the truth. 
There you have Toby, it. thank you. <laughs> Toby, thank you so much for the invitation to be on this very powerful uh, podcast and platform. I have been tremendously blessed by the experience of listening to your podcast oh, and you. your guests. Um, and before I say something about myself and just say something about just us, um, if I had to describe, you know, why you are important to me, I would use pretty much every bullet point you just laid out <laughs> <laughs> with regard to why you value this relationship with me. Uh, you have indeed been a very effective and, and important um, coach in my life um, and mentor and conversation partner and co-conspirator. And I just want to appreciate you. Thank you uh, very for much. That. Thank you. Um, it's amazing sometimes to know how, what, what other baggage the reverend in front of my name can carry for folks. Um, and just the whole idea of church and religion and spirituality. Uh, but I just want to be very clear that I had a lot of options when I was looking for a coach and I decided to go with the coach, not who I felt would be effective using all the tools of executive coaching, uh, but the one who knew how to conjure, who mm. knew how to cultivate spirituality, um, okay. who talked about something called beautiful leadership. Yeah. Once you said beautiful, you had me at that. When you said beautiful <laughs> leadership, I was like, mm -hmm. yeah, that's what I, I want. I'm about being, not just doing. Mm -hmm. And um, you are a grounded, a grounded person. Um, and coach, and it's why I wanted to be in this relationship with you. So it's been tremendously. Thank you. It's been tremendously uh, helpful. That was the spirit calling to apparently information. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now we're taking calls. <laughs> yeah. So um, you asked me to say something about myself. So I am an American Baptist minister. I'm ordained in the American Baptist Church's tradition. Um, I hail from Los Angeles, California, uh, where I spent half my life, uh, my childhood and my college years. Um, I moved to the San Francisco Bay Area to go to graduate school and seminary, and I've been here ever since. So I'm just about half and half now, half my life in LA, half my life here in the Bay. Um, I work for and with um, an international network of faith-based community organizations that for many years was known as PICO National Network, and today, um, lives under the banner of Faith in Action. We are in uh, four countries, Rwanda, Haiti, El Salvador, and the United States. In the United States, we are in 25 states. Um, and we are pretty much communities of faith, uh, local communities of faith that have federated together um, mm -hmm. in a city, in a county, in a state to work on social issues together to try to change policy through the practice of faith-based community organizing. And uh, much of my time in the organization has been centered around the role that faith leaders play in this work. I was, I was a faith leader, a local pastor in Oakland and then San Jose involved in this work. And then I joined the national staff of this organization and trained other at rabbis and imams and ministers and spiritual leaders whose communities were a part of our work. Uh, today I serve as the deputy director um, alongside my, my partner, our new executive director, Reverend Alvin Herring. Um, I'm also the president of the Alliance of Baptists, which is a progressive body of Baptists in the United States uh, with partnerships in many other places around the world, um, committed uh, to shared mission, committed to creating a theological home for uh, for Baptists who have found themselves sort of you know, etched out of their communities because of their radical vision of inclusion. Mm -hmm. Wow, thank you. Um, I guess I'm going to jump right in because I think that, you know, we're talking about Black lives and the fact that Black lives um, should obviously matter. And yet for all that is happening um, in the world, and I mean, how many more cameras do we need on George Floyd for people to get that black lives in 2020 have not mattered? They haven't mattered in the same way that some people think that all lives have or should or do matter. 
they just don't matter. And, and, and so why that doesn't represent a sense of urgency and priority in the minds of every living, breathing human being, um, to me is just, it is beyond um, anger and rage. It is beyond logic and reason. It is beyond everything that I know as a framework for making sense of the whole. Um, all I know is that something must be at risk of dying in order for Black lives to matter. Mm. <laughs> that's, because that makes sense. Like that's the only reason that people can see that um, could justify Black lives not being, yeah. you know, yeah. first and foremost in their mind. Mattering. You know, yeah, you know, Black Lives Matter, the hashtag will be seven years old in the next mm -hmm. week or so. Mm -hmm. And um, I, th I guess maybe five years ago, on the second anniversary, I think, of Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. I may have the date wrong, one of the anniversaries, early ones, mm -hmm. I wrote a tribute to Black Lives Matter, it's a very short, like 30 second piece, where I basically said Black Lives Matter is apocalyptic in that it uncovered the reality, um, the insidiousness of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's happened. I mean, it's, it's it, you know, what's happened is somebody does have to die. Um, something has to happen that sort of pulls back the covering. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what apocalyptic means, is to mm -hmm. uncover. Um, it's the revelation. Um, we just keep covering it up. We keep covering up the ways in which Black lives don't matter. And uh, Black Lives Matter a hashtag, the Black Lives Matter movement um, has continued to help uncover the ways in which all lives matter is a bold-faced lie. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just not, it's not the truth that we live mm -hmm. in this country um, and in this globe. And so um, it's, been, it's been really helpful. I mean, I, I refer to Opal, Patrice, and Alicia, the three women, three queer women who've really started this hashtag and helped to make it um, you know, what it is today, you know, I call them the women of the apocalypse, um, <laughs> out, of, out of this, out of the scripture and revelation who, the woman who was, um, you know, trying to deliver a message of hope that the woman of the apocalypse story in revelation is about a pregnant woman who's about to give birth to a child. And there's a dragon that's trying to devour the child as soon as it's born. Um, and I feel like they're facing the dragon of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. and still trying to birth a message of hope that Black lives actually do matter. Mm -hmm. um, and I even suggest, I think, in the piece that we can't live lives that matter until Black lives matter. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and until all really means all. Because mm -hmm. um, there's nothing outside of all. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, so if you're going to say, if you're going to say all lives matter, you, gotta, you better be sure you've better gathered all. Right, exactly. All into all. <laughs> Um, so it's, it's been, it's been a very interesting journey for me. I'm 52 years old. I'll, I'll be 52 years old in a month. And, you know, I was born in 1968. I was born, you know, in a very turbulent year, um, in the life of this country. Um, and despite the fact that I was born in that turbulent year in the year that, uh, Dr. King was assassinated and, and many others, um, I still grew up with a vision for my life that was shaped by my church and my school and my parents that was pretty much still a pretty upward trajectory. That, um, I, that despite what happened in the year that I was born, the work of that movement was re, redefining what it meant to be American, reifining what it meant to be Black and American and like the prospects for me were going to be better than those of my parents and my grandparents and my ancestors before me. And we would just keep, we would just keep, you know, realizing the American dream and that the trajectory would just keep going up. And um, I was a recent college graduate in 1992 when um, Rodney King, um, well, Rodney King, when the, when the trial around Rodney King happened and the, un the unrest and rebellion um, um, was a reality in Los Angeles. And I was still living in Los Angeles at the time. I was still, I was on the staff of a local church, uh, right in the thick of things. 
And that was a heavy and traumatic moment. Um, but I have to tell you, Toby, like even in that moment, I wasn't yet fully awake to the ways in which this, tra this idea that was sold to me as a child that I, things would keep going up and up and up. Mm -hmm. This was just sort of an aberration. Like this mm -hmm. was like, it, it didn't change the trajectory. I was still going to keep going up. We were still going to keep going up and up. So in some ways it really took the Ferguson moment. Um, and I think it was because I found myself in Ferguson and on the ground with young people who were standing up for their rights and for their lives mm -hmm. um, because I was with other clergy um, who were wrestling with trying to figure out um, their role in a moment like this and the call of this moment and the meaning of this moment that it really was just, you know, just six years ago that I, that I kind of got it like, no, this, this trajectory that I've been sold is, it was, it, it was never really true. Yeah. Yeah. It was never really true. Yeah. Um, and now I have to rethink, like, what does it mean for me to understand my call, to understand history, to understand my purpose um, in the world? Um, it's, it's been, and it's been quite a journey these past six years in particular. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. I mean, I, it's, you know, we, we're in the same decade. I'll just say that you're at the beginning of the decade. I'm at the end of it. But, but when Rodney King happened, I was the first chief diversity officer at Baxter mm -hmm. Healthcare in Deerfield, Illinois. Mm -hmm. I was, um, I had in that Bless goal, your heart. Right. Bless my heart. I had achieved <laughs> my corporate goal of becoming an African-American under the age of 30, making over $100,000 a year, according to Ebony Magazine. Right, <laughs> like that was right. my goal. Right. And Rodney King happened. And I was, we were recognized as at the time, one of the you know, top award-winning companies for diversity. There was no word inclusion back then. It was valuing diversity, right? And managing mm -hmm. diversity. And Managing. I built the curriculum, yes. right, all that sort of stuff. So we were here, we are at the top of every list and best place to work for, you know, black folks and this and that and the other. And I'm leading that charge along with the only black man I had ever reported into in my entire career, who was my mm. boss. Mm. And Rodney King happened. And mm. for all of the training and the language and the awareness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I came to work and white people could not look at black people yeah. that day mm -hmm. we couldn't speak to each other mm -hmm. we could i couldn't open my mouth because i was afraid of what was going to come out i didn't want to mm -hmm. be on the elevator with get caught in that moment the proximity talk about social distancing yes, yes it began yes. then <laughs> yes it yes, began yes, then. yes and yes. um and, but you're right and, and we're and and wearing masks and wearing masks, yeah, because I had to put on a real serious mask that mm -hmm. day. And I know mm -hmm. everybody else is just because the differences were so thick. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't a line, yeah. it was a wall. It was a wall. Right. Yeah. And um, and that was when I realized that I was like, why am I here? <laughs> like, what am I doing here in this role? You know, what what are we really like? Why this should be the safe place, right? Because we're mm -hmm. <laughs> like and it wasn't mm -hmm. it wasn't mm -hmm. um you know i can only imagine where that workplace is today and how this moment is affecting them and mm -hmm. if it's affecting them any differently than it did a me when i was in that role mm -hmm. but then advance forward like you said to to michael brown and mm -hmm. i'm sitting in a progressive philanthropic organization in the bay area and working in san francisco and living in oakland and there are marches and there are protests. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I can't just get up and drive to San Francisco and, you know, you know what I mean? And be that guy <laughs> every day. We've got, so I called on my CEO and I went into her office and I said, we can't sit here in the pretty Presidio and do nothing. We right. at least have to go and have a conversation. We have to check on the community that we say we serve. And so we started, you know, we had a listening conversation and we brought in 25 young men from the Bay Area community, mm -hmm. okay? And we paid them. Mm 
because we knew that being there was as an expense. Right. And we just put them in a room in a circle. And we had one question for these young men, these young black and brown men to answer and to discuss among themselves while 250 people listened. And that was what needs to change in America. So that what happened in Ferguson never happens again. And on that night, there were protests on the highways in Oakland. And these young men poured their hearts and souls out that night. We have a video on it. Mm. And so when, when this happened, you know, just six, what, six years later, because that was what, 2014? Yeah. yeah. Here we yeah. are, 2020. Right. And it's not, it's not, again, it's worse. Right, right. It's worse. And the right. first thing I thought about was, what would I say to those young men that I stood in, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 I mean, it's, a, it's a continued uncovering. I, I, I feel like what's, I feel like what's happened to make this moment feel different than six years ago is that the uncovering has been like continuous, you know, and it's like after a while, like, you know, after you've been sort of steeped in this for a while, there's something in the social order that has to sort of, that has to reckon with it that's different. Like, that's why you see different bodies in the streets today than you saw in the streets six years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, there's the, the literature that people are reading is, some of it didn't even exist six years ago. Um, and now more people are reading things that folks have been trying to uncover and explain uh, for, for some time. I, I, I feel like there's just a lot, of, a lot of factors that have converged to create the uniqueness of this moment. And um, I still have the huge hermeneutic of suspicion <laughs> around whether or not this is going to be the moment that changes everything. Because after all, that's what my parents thought in 1968. Absolutely. And yeah. mine in 1968 were fighting and marching, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then, and I remember when King was assassinated. I, I was a child and I didn't understand, but I remember my mom mm -hmm. crying while looking at the TV. And then I think to myself, so we got this, we got affirmative action, right? I'm a direct beneficiary of that. So, mm -hmm. so on the one hand, they were, they were able to tell me the sky was the limit and things were going to get better and sit in the front of the room and get straight A's and all that sort mm -hmm. of stuff. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, they did everything they could do to prepare me for Rodney King. Mm -hmm. You get my point? Mm -hmm. They were the ones who said, don't, don't expect much from white people mm -hmm. and then you'll never be disappointed. Mm -hmm. so, so they had to give me two truths. Yeah. Not, you know, neither was a lie. Right, right. Yeah. And, but, what, but they were rooted in two possibilities. Yeah, my, I, I, I feel like I... I feel like my story is a little bit different in that, you know, you know, you, you remember what you remember mm -hmm. from your childhood. And, you know, if my parents were here, they probably could point out a bunch of moments where they were doing exactly what you describe your parents as doing. But I remember saying in 2014, I wasn't raised for this moment. Mm -hmm. I wasn't raised for this moment. Like, I, I really did believe in the upward trajectory. I knew racism was still very much alive. Um, I knew bias was very much a part of my journey. Um, I, you know, I had all kinds of incidents that I could point to, but I was still like, nevertheless, you know, and we also believe people would tell me, you know, all the racists are going to, that's a generation, they're going to die. And one day they yeah. will be here, you know, well, that's it's obviously going to take time, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's obviously not true. Right. Um, yeah. These are the flower children, right? <laughs> the flower children so, have built the yeah. for the day. But, but 2014, I mean, really was a huge awakening for me. Now, since then, I've done a lot of reflection on, like, what are some other points along my journey where I've kind of been prepared for this, you know? And um, 1992 and, and, the, and the riots and rebellion and uprising in L.A. is a very critical point. But even a little bit before that, there was something about the community, the faith community that nurtured me in Los Angeles, this, this historic Black church of great migration Black folks who came for opportunities and were running from Jim Crow. Um, 
there was something that that community deposited in me that had me understand that there was a, a purpose and a call on my life and that it was rooted in, it was somehow rooted in the same realities of the struggle that were part of the, the landscape, the political and social landscape of in, in the year that I was born. Mm-hmm. So even though I wasn't like raised to be a pro-Black activist in the streets fighting the man, um, I did have some sense that the spirit, that God, the creator, was, was behind this work of justice and that my sense of call to ministry would be shaped by that kind of a call. Um, people ask me what my favorite movie is, and um, my favorite movie is Cry Freedom, which tells the story of Steve Biko um, and his relationship with the white journalist and editor Donald Woods, who wrote the book that the movie is based on. Um, that's Denzel Washington and Kevin Klein, and um, and I, I like that, that movie's important to me because it's one of the last movies I saw with my dad before he passed away, but it's also it's also um, a movie in which I cried a lot because I felt this sense that there was something in the social order in the United States that was not different than what I was looking at in apartheid era South Africa. Mm-hmm. And that one day I and others like me would have to take risks um, to fight for freedom and liberation. You've been to South Africa, right? I have not. Oh, okay. I have have not. Okay, well, I won't say anything until you go. That is is something that needs to happen. It does. You need to go. Mm -hmm. I went to South Africa after living in Ghana for two years. Mm. So my head had been turned around after living in Ghana, and I mean turned around, and then to get on the plane and go to Cape Town, it was, and to still be on African soil, was like cold water <laughs> mm. being dropped on my face, on my across mm. my whole body. Like, it was like being mm. dipped in the in a cold, icy, you yeah. know, bucket of water. Like wow, it was a very different experience. Just the way I felt, the air I was breathing was fundamentally um, tight. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do hope I do hope in the very near future, like one of the things that I'm not going to procrastinate about when we are finally in a place where it's safe to travel um, again is to make arrangements um, to go to the continent because I have not been to the continent, Toby. And um, that's a that's a big deal for me to be at this point in my journey to have not been on the kind of the closest I've been is Brazil. I was in Brazil last year, um, almost a year ago. And um, that was a that was a life changing experience and had everything to do with what it meant to be a part of the African diaspora. Um, and it, it resolved in me um, a, a desire to um, make sure that I, I get to the to the continent very soon. So I'm, I'm ready for this. There are different experiences. The, 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 different, yeah. the difference of the difference of the boat ride gets really clear for you <laughs> when mm. you're in Brazil versus West Africa. Uh, mm. It's kind of like there's a way in which, you know, I've been, I spent time in both places and I've spent place time. There's a, the boat ride is really significant in terms of consciousness. Mm. You know, because colonialism happened and just legitimately stopped, what, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, Mm -hmm. with the freedom of the first free, you know, Ghana. Mm -hmm. But it's really endemic in the consciousness of of Black countries in ways that they don't really talk about. I mean, and so, but it's a different, but the boat, there's something about the boat ride (laughs) that, Mm. that, that makes it different. Yeah. Um, and you think about this, the power of water <laughs> in all of that, right? When you talk about scripture. So, this, is a, this is not a black man's movement. This is a black people's movement. Mm-hmm. Um, started by black women. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
what I love about this movement, I will say as a black gay man in 2020 is that, you know, I wonder what a, a Bayard Rustin would say today if he were in this space as a black man in the right. Black Lives Matter movement versus the civil rights movement. And I just feel like I, I, I wish that the civil rights leaders and the Black Lives Matters leaders could sit down and talk about what they missed, what they would do differently today, mm -hmm. based upon what mm -hmm. they've learned from those three powerful women that you named. And I've only met Elisa, Alicia, but, um, mm -hmm. But it just, you know, it's just like, it just is something like as a person who's lived through and living through both, I get, you know, it's just a powerful, I don't, I don't really know if I have a point here other than it's something that I'm really feeling and experiencing. But it also makes me realize, you know, what is the work of black men of all ages, not just the young black men who we see marching and putting their lives at risk, but Mm -hmm. Black men like myself and others in my generation who've been in this game called racism a while now and have mm -hmm. managed to stay alive, mm -hmm. you know, escape the dragon, so to speak. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the notion and principle of Sankofa comes to mind when you say mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, in some ways, in some ways, what we're just saying about Brazil and, and Ghana and South Africa, like all, I mean, all of that is about going back to get the thing that we need, that, that ancestral wisdom. You know, mm -hmm. if the egg is ancestral wisdom, it's like, how do we go back and get that wisdom? And there's a way in which I feel like, I feel like this moment, this Black Lives Matter moment, um, having been birthed through um, three very powerful Black women, um, also points to the ways in which, you know, the movement for Black liberation um, has also had to go back and get the things that it forgot to cherish and bring mm -hmm. to the forefront the last time. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, in some ways, <clears throat> because like faith communities and clergy types aren't like at the center of this movement, the way that right. we think about the civil rights movement, it's a little disorienting um, for a lot of us church types and clergy types who are trying to find our place in this space. <clears throat> and for those of us who are also getting older, it's like, you know, so, you know, the, the young people who are, who are providing less leadership are, you know, are young enough to be my children, you know, right. which oh, is yeah. a very pain, pain, painful thing for me oh. to have to admit. Because um, I just, I just stopped calling myself a young adult a couple minutes ago. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there are ways in which I feel like we, we are, we are building on the wisdom from the past and going back to get the things that we forgot to bring to bring forward and I, I i think that's that's i think that's what that means what, what the leadership of of women and particularly queer and trans women in this moment i think that their leadership represents the ways in which we're going back to get the things that we mm -hmm. didn't bring um with us with us before and it's redefining how we all understand ourselves not just how clergy understand themselves in this moment but how you know Black men understand themselves mm -hmm. in this moment and in this movement, um, and the, the terms under which we collaborate and co-create um, and conspire in this moment are are different. They're, they don't have to be as defined by um, old rules around gender and, and um, gender identity and sexual orientation. Um, old rules, um, even around faith and spirituality, for that matter. Yeah. They're they're just new ways that we're having to learn how to be a space, hold spaces for multiple expressions yeah. um, leading in this work. That, that, that statement is what you get when you live on the African continent. You understand as an African-American the depth, the beautiful deepness and breadth of Blackness mm. because you get to see it in, in, in stunning ways that you've never seen it before. And it all feels familiar to you even though you've never seen it. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Mm -hmm. And so in mm -hmm. a way, and, and that was something, I mean, I, I, you know, that's something that, that you can't explain. You have to be on the continent and moving right. around and then it happens to you and you're like, 
Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's what this is too in, 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 that, in that interesting way. And, and it kind of brings up kind of something I want to talk to you about, which is, you know, one thing that I do, I am experiencing, um, you know, and, and, I, and, and I have to bring COVID-19 into this because part of what angers me in this conversation is that, you know, there, the, the metrics, the data, the numbers, the video, if you followed it, if you saw it, um, about the attack on black bodies didn't just start with George Floyd. It had been happening in COVID-19 mm -hmm. in black right. communities. And, you know, right. for a quick little minute there, I remember black folks walking around going, thinking that they were immune. I don't know if you remember at the very beginning, remember? Oh, yes. Like, oh, yeah, yes. Black people are not mm -hmm. getting it. We got that, you know, black germs are good germs. I was like, oh, right. did that change overnight? <laughs> Nobody's talking about that moment now, you know? Right. And then all right. of a sudden, like the virus was like, oh no, we're here for you. That's right. And that's, and, right. that's and, 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 and I was like, okay, so all of the woke allies now, all mm -hmm. of the data-driven theory of change people, who've got their analysis analyses down about what happens in communities and how you transform communities and how you build renewable and re, you know resilience and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. But there was no mobilization. And I don't know that there still has been any during COVID-19, which was a global pandemic that had its greatest impact on black lives and black bodies. Yeah. yeah. Like, that was on video for yep. the world to see. Yep. And then it becomes COVID-19 <laughs> goes, becomes Floyd, George Floyd. And all of a sudden people are woke. I'm sorry, <laughs> you know, but so, 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 so my body is under attack sitting in New York city, right? I'm on lockdown, right? right. Cause that's what you can call it what you want. But it was mm -hmm. locked down, right? You're on lockdown. That's You're right. on lockdown. I'm just another brother on lockdown right now. That's what was going on. That's what's going on now. That's what's going on today in Miami. So my body, it was aching. I, my mind was so under attack. I had to turn off TV and social media. I had to shut my Facebook account down. Mm -hmm. And only then did I think about, well, what is happening to my spirit? Yes. You know, I said this to you before, I don't even know what the, you know what I mean? Like, what is the point of like, we are, we are black bodies and minds as receptacles for a black spirit. That's what gives us life. What is happening to that? Is there a purpose? Is there a lesson that the black spirit needs to learn? I don't know. Or is this lesson plan for, for white spirits? <laughs> I don't understand, you know, and white bodies and white yeah. you know, who don't seem to be in the same kind of pain. Well, you know, I'm in conversations with some of my white colleagues <clears throat> who are trying to do their own personal spiritual work around whiteness and their, their stake. And um, they need to do that work. And I can't bear the brunt of the emotional labor of that. Um, although I'm happy to, to accompany them in pieces of that journey. Um, but I do think that, you know, um, I don't know. I, I keep I, I mentioned Sankofa before, and I keep coming back to it in a lot of my reflections of late because I feel like there are ways in which the ancestors are trying to tell us something that they that, you know from 150 years ago, mm -hmm. you know from 200, 300 years ago that there are lessons in in our story, and there's there's something that's been passed down to us uh, from the bodies of our of our black ancestors at the cellular level, at the DNA level, the trauma and the truth yeah. of white supremacy. Um, and there are ways in which I'm, I'm being reminded that, um, I'm being reminded that the ancestors are, are, are calling us in this moment to protect ourselves, to, to protect that, that, which is, that which is ours. <clears throat> I've been telling folks a little bit that um, I was doing some work um, a few, right, actually right before um, Shelter in Place started, I, had, I was doing some genealogical research and I found my, um, on my maternal side, I found my second great-grandfather's name on the census record. 
And finding him on the census record in 1900 meant that I then found him in, in 1890 and 1880 and 1870. <clears throat> and then I found his mother um, on a slave record in 1850. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd, I'd known the names of these people already, but I had not seen records of them. And so I found these records. And um, I, one of the things that I found was a record of my second great grandfather name on a voter roll, um, June 28, 1867. That was 153 years ago last wow. Sunday. Um, and I had also been doing a lot of reading about Reconstruction, because that was not something we were really taught about yeah. in high school and college. Like I didn't really learn about Reconstruction, yeah. how short-lived it was. Um, how under-attack it was. How under-attack it was, and like sort of all the ways in which uh, we sort of, white supremacy sort of re reorganized the social order to undo what Reconstruction was supposed to do. And so it's with that backdrop in mind that I'm looking at my, my great-great-grandfather's name on this voter roll and realizing that, um, you know, I don't know how many times he got to vote before Georgia turned things around and he was then fighting for the right to vote. I, I, I don't know what he had to tell his son, my great-grandfather, who I knew, um, about what it meant for him to be a Black man in Georgia um, and in this country. Um, and I wonder then about the world that my grandfather, who I love deeply, was born into. Uh, it makes me think about the experience of my mother coming up um, in the early days of the Civil Rights Movement and being in college at Hampton Institute back then in the, in the early 1960s, uh, well, late 1950s, early 1960s, um, and, and realizing that <clears throat> this, this once going back to that trajectory, this is an, uh, not a linear journey. Mm -mm. This is a cyclical journey um, that Delcy has been where I've been. Green, her son, has been where I've been. Herman, his son, has been where I've been. Juanita, his daughter has been where I've been. And that I need to go back and get the wisdom mm -hmm. that Delcy and Green and Herman and Juanita have been offering me just in the, through their bodies, their very bodies. Mm -hmm. um, and so there, there's a way in which there's a way in which the protection of, of my spirit is about uh, recognizing my connection to the spirit of my ancestors. And I've also been, I've also been, um, reflecting on how that is true in another direction, hmm. that what the wisdom I'm trying to embody and hold in this moment is wisdom that will be critical uh, for my second great-grandchildren, the people who will call me their second great-grandfather. Wow. Wow. Um, and so then what, does it, what, do, what is the wisdom I need to cultivate, the wisdom I need to hold um, that prepares not only myself for this moment, or my son, a young 23-year-old Black man um, in this country, but his children, his children's children, and their children's children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you're going to be that story, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you're going to be that. You're going to be who mm -hmm. they find on the genealogy when they do their aunt, their 23 mm -hmm. and me. Mm -hmm. That's right. There's going to be a whole lot more information about you. Than, <laughs> right. But, yes. Because yeah. so they'll, they'll have more than census right. records. They'll have yeah. Facebook, you and, know, Facebook and archives. And Twitter and everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. No, it, in it, this it, podcast. Yeah. It, it, it is a real calling of um, the spirit of Black men. And, you know, mm -hmm. and, I, and I mean that in the plural, not just in the singular. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. it weighs on you. I mean, and and I think about the self-care. I mean, it's because my body was aching and my mind was fractured because of all of the pound, pounding of, you know, pummel, pummeling of, of social media that, that I got on the plane soon as I could and came to Miami, you know, of course, mm -hmm. I followed the COVID down here. But nonetheless, um, <laughs> you know, it, because I knew I needed to be you know, have my walk my feet through the Atlantic waters. <laughs> I have yes. to do that. That's what sets me free. Mm -hmm. And, um, mm -hmm. and it worked. It worked. I mean, there's clearly um, stuff that you have to figure out what works for you and, and do it. Um, I, I want to turn, you know, you talk about Sankofa 
and I'm so familiar. I mean, that's a that's a, a Dinkra message. Mm-hmm. It comes out of Ghana. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an Adinkra, Akan, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. the Akan um, framework and philosophy and, and ideology. Um, so I know it well. And and in that spirit, you know, I the one thing about the civil rights movement and that that um, maybe I don't know, maybe there is a plan because I'm also really so aware that we don't know everything that happened. You know, like the, there's the story and then there's what happened in the civil rights movement. And so I'm, mm-hmm. I've gotten it clear that we don't necessarily know just because it's on Google doesn't mean it happened. And just because it's not on Google doesn't mean it didn't happen. So, so I try to hold that space when, you know, and please I invite the least listeners to do that as well. But, but I, I, you know, I don't believe, how do I say this? I don't, I don't believe that fighting for equality and justice is enough. Mm. It's not a finishing point, Michael Ray. Mm-hmm. It's a starting mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. And, and as I look back with, you know, um, and I'm no expert on black history or anything else. I'm just a black man with my own history. I don't know that I've under, that I've heard what the plan is for the future, except possibly in one phrase um, of Dr. King that I remember, which is, I want to wake up. I want to wake up to the day, and I think it was in I Have a Dream, where little black children and little white children are judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character mm-hmm. and so so for me what that meant was that he was pointing to the other side of that mountaintop right you know the, the that day and that place when we will all be together but not like this not like what was going on on the other side of the mountain and mm-hmm. so for me when i look at the, the, the battle for justice and equity and equality, and they are right and necessary battles worthy mm-hmm. of all and more that we have. But all they do is kill the dragon. They don't build Zion. Right. They don't build what we need and want waiting on the other side of the mountain. They don't lay the groundwork for Wakanda. <laughs> do you get my point? <laughs> Right. They right, don't. Right. They don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and I and I and so 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 somehow I don't know if it's Afrofuturism. I don't know what it is, but I, I, huh? It's that. It's Afrofuturism. Yeah, I mean, that's I'm, at least at least for me. It like it's. I mean, it's it's the other side of the Sankofa piece. So it's like when I when yeah. I was naming when I was naming the ways in which I need to go back and get Delcy's wisdom. I'm also saying I gotta I got I gotta. I got to reach forward and figure out how to pass down the timeline, this wisdom, and imagine a future where my second great-grandchildren can actually access this wisdom right. and allow for it to shape how they show up um, and lead and lead in the world. I, I do think we I do think we spend far too little time cultivating an imagination about a future. Yeah. Um, about what beloved community means. I love the yeah. term beloved community, but no one knows what that really means. Right. We, we have a vague ethereal sense of what beloved community is and you can say it and people will nod their heads and they, we all kind of, we all kind of get it, but we need to actually like describe it. We need, we need the to, map. We need to design it. We need to, we need to tell the stories of what it looks like to live in beloved community, to live right. in So that Wakanda. we know we're there. So exactly. we we're close. So exactly. that we can smell the change in the air, <laughs> you yeah. know, we don't have, I don't think the, the current, I know the civil rights movement didn't give us that because I lived mm-hmm. through it and I'm still waiting to hear from it. And I know it's too early right now because we're the, 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 the dragon is breathing fire, baby. Got right. it. Right. Understand. Right. We have to so, put the fire out. Yeah, we got to get right. the rest of the But yeah. some of us need to get a, off the battlefield and find our way mm-hmm. to the other side of the mountain while nobody's looking sure. and start sure. laying the map yeah. for Zion, for Wakanda. W- Wakanda and Zion to me are the same thing. I mean, yeah. really. Yeah. Like, yeah, Wakanda, like, Zion, Wakanda community. Is, Zion, yeah. is the 2020 version of Zion. <laughs> yes, yes. It, it yes. is. So, yes. you know, that's what Where it Black is. Lives Matter. Where right. all Where Black, Black Lives Matter. Matter. Right, exactly. Where Black Lives Flourish. Right. Um, yeah, indeed. So for um, me, I want to be about the work of building Zion. 
Yeah. And I, I don't think, know I, a lot even about what Zion is all about in the Bible. I know it's near the end of time and all that stuff, you know. But the end of time doesn't mean the end of life. It just means the end of these days like this. Mm-hmm. It means the, the end of time for the dragon is what it means. <laughs> That's right. Life on the other side. Because in that right. story in Revelation, the, the baby, the baby that, the, that the woman of the apocalypse gives birth to actually does survive mm-hmm. um, and is saved from. And there are no dragons where that, dragon. when that baby grows up. Yes. Um, so, I mean, I, once again, I, I still think that there's wisdom that we have to keep unearthing. Um, some of it is, you know, some of it's, some of it's recorded somewhere. Um, you mentioned earlier the, the desire for civil rights, civil rights leaders to be in conversation with Black Lives Matter leaders. There are a, a, just a, a few here and there of folks, people like Ruby Sales and people like, um, uh, Angela Davis, people like um, um, Harry Belafonte, uh, um, who are in conversations with a lot of the folks that uh, rose to prominence uh, six years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a dialogue, and you know, like I'm curious about the documentation of those conversations and the wisdom and the stories that haven't been told yet uh, from from that era that need to be told. Those, the stories, the stories that aren't told because they're stories that would have been written by women, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or younger people or people who didn't quite meet the middle class standards, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're queer, queer folks. Like there's like all kinds of stories and wisdom that we, that we can, that we can uncover um, and that we need to, that we need to uncover um, in yeah. a moment like this. And I, I think that's, I think that's necessary information um, for then being able to cultivate a vision of Zion, of Wakanda, of beloved community. I teach a principle in my work that says if you're not cultivating a moral imagination together, you're probably living inside someone else's. Mm. Um, and a lot of that is rooted in the, I mean, it, it all came out of the Ferguson experience, this principle that I teach, because I was recognizing that I was living inside an imagination that told the lie of the American dream. I was living inside an imagination that said one day all the really racist people will just die and we won't be fighting the same fight anymore. I was living in an imagination that said that um, I could think of doing all this work from a very hyper-individualized standpoint. If I just do my good work and do my part, things will get better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've realized, you know, in the past six, seven years that we have to cultivate a much bigger moral imagination than what's been handed to us. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, it's a confining imagination, the American moral imagination. It's, it's deadly. It's a deadly imagination. And we have to cultivate that imagination. That means we have to gather all the information from our ancestors and our elders it means we have to uh, create spaces where we actually not only think about the work we have to do right now to get our people free right now and to protect life right now, but we also have to do the work that allows for us to imagine what happens on the other side of now and what, and what really life, um, um, a future for Black life actually looks like. Um, so I, I, it's, it's, been, it's been a very important framing for me personally in my leadership and one that I've been trying to cultivate in my conversations with other faith leaders mm-hmm. um, with whom I with whom I work in faith and action and and in the Alliance of Baptists for that matter. You know you, you remind me of um, you, you brought up early on beautiful leadership and then the the the, um, the readership doesn't really know I haven't talked about beautiful leadership but the beautiful leadership is a framework um, it's a it's a new way of thinking about leadership that for me was born in 2014 mm-hmm. um, after shortly after two two in the midst of one event and shortly after the other at the end of 2013 Nelson Mandela passed away mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. as you know I always idolized him and so I was you know I'm a writer so I, I sat down and I wrote this little 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 blog called Remembering Mediva the Beautiful Leader and that was the first time it ever came out and in it I talked about how could this man who was born a shepherd, mm. Mm. right, become president of mm-hmm. a country that stole his land, <laughs> you know? And, and in that, um, I talked about the seduction power of his beauty 
as a leader. And um, I talked about that beauty coming from the connectedness that he and his family, his royal family of shepherds had to nature, right? And to the laws and the rules of, of nature, which meant that it was, he lived in an identity and like you talk about a, a more, his moral compass wasn't mm -hmm. built based upon the, you know, patriarchal capitalistic frameworks that we live in, right? That mm -hmm. create the injustice and the inequality that we have had to battle, but that he learned to be a shepherd first. And that mm -hmm. in that he also learned to be a warrior by necessity. And then a few months later, you know, Michael Brown happens. And that night that we did that conversation and these young men were talking, one young man, I wish I knew his name, stood mm -hmm. up and he said, and his eyes teared up when he said it. He said, I want to know, where is our king? Where is mm -hmm. our Mandela? Mm -hmm. That's what he said. And it was in that moment with all those people in the room, and I don't think he ever knew that what, how that touched me. And I realized, I said, you know, he did, nobody's telling him that he is his king and he mm -hmm. is his Mandela. Mm -hmm. There's nothing out there that mm -hmm. shows him how to access Mandela and king yeah. Yeah. in him. No book on yeah. leadership, no seven habits of highly effective people, no, right. you right. know, no, no art on the new deal. <laughs> Right. Art of the deal, none of no right. Apprent, right. none of it. Right. And that's where beautiful leadership came from. And I spent the next year, well, more actually every day since then, building this concept, which is based on after studying black, male and female and brown leaders from all over the global south, because I wanted a, a non-colonial framework. I realized mm -hmm. that they were five characteristics that showed up in all of these leaders. I'm talking about Wangari Mafa, Kenya, and and then my dear friend, Wanja Mugongo, who's, an, who's a human rights, now retired human rights activist in, in Kenya, who's now on a farm raising indigenous root vegetables. And I just love the way she you know, lives her life. And, and King, of course, and Mandela and Gandhi, et cetera, et cetera, all imperfect people. Mm. But these characteristics, the one uncommon effort, the things that they do big and small that nobody else has time to do is too important to do. Steadfast mm. focus. You know, it doesn't matter how windy the, the skies, how crowded the storm, they know where they're going. Compassion, mm -hmm. deep compassion, deep and profound humility. And the hardest one was optimism. So many mm. of our leaders, and I've coached a lot of them, in the midst of this struggle, in the fighting of the dragon, and I understand it, but they've lost their optimism. Their leadership is fueled by hurt and rage and sadness and loss. And while I understand it, only optimism will lead you, you know, in the right direction. Mm. But I'm saying all of that to say that um, it was in, in, that, in that moment that I really began to understand what kind of, what was missing, you know, for young people. And, um, and not only young people, but for me you know, and yeah. for, for lots of leaders. And yes. I, do, I do think that, that, that for, you know, to meet a black man who is, who, who, who's, whose actions are embodied by uncommon effort mm -hmm. and steadfast focus, who can't be moved off of his, you know, sort of compass, who's compassionate, who is humble, and who, when he walks into the room, lifts people up. Mm. That's what it's going to take. Yeah. Yep. We've got Indeed. black women who are doing that. I mean, we know yes. that. Yes. But we also need more black men doing that. Absolutely. Of all ages. All of all ages. Yeah. Of all ages. Of all and ages. we need to and we need to be cultivating um yeah. you know and uh, that in in one another. Yeah. Um I mean if there's anything I figured out early on is that I I could not do this journey without without mentors, without colleagues and peers, without uh confidants. Like I I'm I've, I have often sought out that kind of wisdom. Now, I'm starting to wonder now what that looks like because I've always sought that out from people who are older than me. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I'm reaching that point now where yeah. the generation before me is starting to say goodbye. Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, you know where, will I, where, where will I go for that? And how does that work in, um, for, for folks who are older? I used to ask 
I used to ask my aunt when I was very, very young and small, I used to look up in the sky towards her and it was scary up there, you know, like if, you know, if, if one day I were actually five feet something tall, would I be afraid because it's so high up in the, high up in the air? Um, and she thought that was, that was hilarious. And I, I use that question with a lot of my um, older <laughs> mentors in my twenties. I said, well, I'm now as tall as you, but I'm not up there with you in age. And I want to know, is this scary up there? Like, <laughs> does it, does it get better? Like, you know, um, can I, can I survive this? I, I do think that there's a really important um, body of work that we have to attend to. And that some folks are, that's really aim, aiming at sort of a cross-generational engagement of black men um, and really supporting the kind of leadership um, and not just leadership, but um, supporting the kind of practices that allow for us to lead from um, from the best of who we are, from the very depths of our own uh, sense of sense of purpose and and justice, and and, and what's right. Um, you know, I, I think we I think we 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 need that in a in a very serious very serious way in this in this moment. I think I've spent most of my most of my adult life trying to find that either in a community or in a set of relationships. So, including this one, Toby. Well, thank you. So it, it's, it's come to me, it's the, we're wrapping up, but I was like, what's, mm -hmm. the, what's the one, you know, I like to leave with a forward, you talk about Sankofa. <clears throat> um, so Sankofa is also father to son. You know what I mean? It's also like, what do I know that, you know, looking back that I want to give to you as you look forward. So what is that, that as you've gone through and you recognize and you think about all of that, and like you said, you have a son who's 23, who's finding his way out in the world in this moment, right? Yes. yes <laughs> in this yes. particular moment. What do you, what would you say? What, what as a father, what should black fathers be saying to their sons? Mm. That's a huge question. Um, because this black father is often trying to figure out what to say mm -hmm. to his son. Um, it's been an interesting journey being a father, um, because I, I really, I, I had such a tumultuous experience with my dad mm -hmm. that only began to repair itself in my early twenties. And he died within like three years mm -hmm. of that process of reconciliation. So it was unfinished. And I've had to finish it in the, you know, the therapist's office uh, <laughs> over all these years. Mm -hmm. um, and when, when we found out we were um, going to become parents, uh, my big prayer was that we would not have a boy because I felt like I will not do well mm -hmm. by this boy because my dad had a hard time figuring out how to do right by me. Um, and it, it took, you know, it, it, it took me coming to terms with my dad to help me be, become a better, a better father. And um, I do think there's, I, th I think there's, I think there's wisdom, wisdom about that journey that, um, that was my journey as a son that I need to share much more um, freely with my son now. He is now the age that I was when my father died. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it was a very hard, and it's part of why I sought out so much counsel mm -hmm. in my young adult years, because um, the one person who I should be able to count on was really no longer, you know, available. Mm -hmm. uh, before I was mad because he was alive in the world and wasn't playing that role. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, now, now that he started to play the role, cancer came and got him. Um, and now he's not here. So um, I, I think that there's, I think there's a lot of, a lot of the real experiences and stories from our journeys, what lessons we've learned is things that have been a part of our own life of um, the fears, the grief, and the rage that have been a part of my experience as a black man are things that I need to be able to share with my son in this moment. And I say that because I feel that we live in a society that has really socialized black men to not be in touch with those things. Mm -hmm. um, we don't want to be the angry black man. Um, and if we're, if we, and we don't want to be in touch with our, with our grief and our fear, cause that makes us weak. Mm -hmm. uh, and so then we end up like having to pretend like we can't feel at all. 
Um, I mean, I, I mean, I think very much the reasons my, my father couldn't connect with me because he would have had to be vulnerable with mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. um, and it was only after he died that I learned about how incredibly vulnerable and therefore beautiful mm -hmm. of a man he was. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm learning from my father, you know, in, you know, from the spirit of my father and through all the research that I do with other people in his life who can tell me. And so I don't want, I don't want all of my friends and family to have to tell my son the things that I right. need to tell him that it's right. okay to be in touch with your feelings, to be right. in touch with your, be in touch with your fears and to name what you're afraid of and to name what you need to feel safe and brave and, and able to walk with courage in a, in a fearful world that it's okay for you to be sad because there's a lot of, there's a lot of grief in this world. Right. And you know, the, you know, the trauma of watching what happened to George Floyd or what happened to Ahmaud Arbery or what happened to Breonna Taylor, that's the grief is grief is a, is a legitimate and real response to that. And you should cry. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And not only is grief an appropriate response, but so is rage. Mm -hmm. And so in a world where we've been taught to not appear to be angry because that plays into a stereotype about angry black men, angry black women, the reality is that well, there's a lot out there for us to be pretty pissed off about. Mm -hmm. And anger, anger is just rich with information because we're angry because of something has been violated and we need to be able to name you've crossed a line and it's not okay. And here's what I'm going to need, not only to feel safe, but only, but, but for this thing to be right. Justice is about right relationship. Yeah. So if we're going to be in right relationship. This is what has to happen. And so being able to name that kind of, that kind of fear, that kind of grief and that kind of rage, I think are, is, is really critical for um, for for young black men, and I and I guess it's I guess it's the lesson I'm trying to figure out how to how to share with my son. I guess I've been trying to do that ever since he became you know aware of who he is as a black person mm -hmm. um, in the world um, in 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 the seasons following um, the Ferguson uprising. Oh, even Trayvon Martin, that was what, eight years ago? So eight years right. ago, he was 15. He was 15 mm -hmm. eight years ago. Yeah, we mm -hmm. were having that conversation eight years ago because I mm -hmm. wanted him to be careful about himself out right, in the of world. Course. Of course. You know? Um, so I, I'm really trying to really trying to cultivate the kind of relationship with him where, um, where we can talk about that. Right. Those very real realities. Thank you. Thank you. Um, prophetic resistance. Let's tell our audience about how they can. Sure. Y'all need to y'all need to check out some prophetic resistance. All so right. Lovely. Tell them where it is. Yeah. So prophetic resistance is on pretty much any podcast carrier. We're definitely on Spotify. We're on Apple Podcasts and Google Google Podcasts. Um, and we're having conversations with spiritual leaders, faith leaders about what in their traditions teaches them to resist injustice. So prophetic resistance is about resisting injustice and resisting it through the lens of spiritual wisdom, mm -hmm. um, of, of, of the lessons of our faith communities and traditions. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, thank I, you, Toby. I could, we could go on, but you know, <laughs> we will. <laughs> and exactly, we will. We will continue this conversation. Right, exactly, exactly. But thank I you so much for holding now, this space. So. We, we need this space, Toby. So thank you yeah. for creating this space for Alrighty. us. Alrighty. And thank Blessings. you for listening to uh, another episode of the Real Lives of Strong Black Men podcast. Please take a moment, like it, sign up, but most importantly, share it with the Black people that you love. Alrighty. Take care.